and Hound podcast. Hello and welcome to this week's Horse and Hound podcast. I'm Pippa Room, magazine editor here at Horse and Hound. Well, it is a big week of both running and riding for me. It's the toughest week of training in my half marathon plan, so there is a lot of running going on. And on the riding side, I have my first eventing outing this weekend, so I'm really looking forward to that. Our interview this week is with the Italian event rider Vittoria Panazon. She talks about her experiences at three different Olympics, including the challenges of getting to Tokyo last year. We were having to juggle Brexit, Covid and Olympic rules and that was almost not doable. There was actually a moment that we almost thought we just don't know how we can get there. I'll be talking to our news team about the treatment of grooms in our industry, how the menopause affects riders and jockey weights. Finally, we'll be hearing from bits and bitting expert Tricia Nassau-Williams, who talks about changes in this area over the years. I think really it's an incredibly exciting and positive time in our industry because so much more thought and care is going into not only the designs of our products but the actual requirements but I just think we need to think about what we've got and why we're using them. So that's enough from me, pick up your whip and let's get going. My guest this week is an Italian event rider based in Gloucestershire. She's a European medalist at junior young rider and senior level and a three-time Olympian. It is, of course, Vittoria Panazon. Hello, Vittoria. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Pippa. It's lovely to have you with us. Now, I think we should start off by finding a bit more about your background and getting to know you a little better. As I said, Italian based in Gloucestershire. Tell us a little about your roots and where you grew up. I grew up near Rome. Um, not far out of Rome, quite close to Pratoni del Vivaro, which is where they have the big championships they hold in Italy. Um, it's the most beautiful place there and I wasn't too far away um, as a child. Um, so I actually learnt to ride on school ponies um, right next door to the big equestrian centre. And um, I was in Italy until I was 17 and I actually then rode at a different riding centre um, once I started competing um, and that was the other side of Rome along the sea and um, that was from when I was about seven I think um, and the chief instructor there was Federico Roman who um, won the Moscow Olympics and competed at top level for a long time um, but Lisa Argentieri also followed me a lot when I was on ponies and one, I got very good instruction. You get a lot of instruction in Italy because everyone's based at riding centres and, and people don't tend to have horses at home. But I did rather want to have a pony at home as well. <laughs> <laughs> and your parents, one Italian, one Scottish, is that right? Yes, that's right. My mother's originally Scottish from the Isle of Mull, um, but she moved to Italy when she was young and uh, stayed there for many, many years and married an Italian, my father. She was there for about 35 years, I think, then eventually started not liking the hot weather so much. We initially moved to England. She's now actually gone back to the Isle of Mull, uh, which is amazing. Uh, my father sadly died when I was eight, so that's why we then considered moving back to the UK, but stayed there until I was actually 17. I then moved mostly for riding. There's just not much eventing at top level and uh, there are top level events but not many of them and it's easier to be a big fish in a small pond but actually it's more constructive to compare yourself against the rest of the world and set yourself a bit more of a challenge um, and of course just compete more more horses more events a lot more opportunities Mm. So you moved back to Britain when you were sort of in your late teens and you were, as I said earlier, a junior and young rider medalist, junior European champion. How did you, and then also went to university in Britain, how did you sort of in your later teenage years come to juggle sort of a university education and eventing at that really high level? <laughs> yes, I moved here when I was just about to start my AS levels and swapped from Italian system to English but I had actually done English international primary school in Italy. So 
I've always been bilingual. I grew up speaking English to my mother, Italian to my father. Um, I went to international schools and Italian schools and, and alternated between the languages. So throughout all my education, I studied in one language and in the other language. So that made it fairly easy to transition um, moving here, although the system's a bit different and some things are taught differently. Uh, and also I changed direction because I started studying a very classical uh, direction in Italy of upper school with ancient Greek and Latin and stuff. And then I actually ended up going down a more scientific route once I'd moved here and um, studied zoology at university <laughs> so it was a slightly different direction in the end yeah and victoria we actually first knew each other at university when you were at bristol i was at exeter and we used to ride against each other in university competitions so you were managing to ride in university competitions event at a really good level on your own horses and study as well how did you manage it where were your horses based and how did you fit everything in well i've been incredibly lucky throughout all my time since I moved from Italy, I've had huge support from Sarah Bullen. That's where I moved the horses to when I first moved to England. Um, I've now set up my own yard and I've been away from her a while, but she's still my mentor. She still uh, helps me with any advice I need and um, still helps walk courses with me and all sorts of things. So Sarah looked after horses while I was at university. Um, Bristol was only an hour and a half away, so it was just about commutable for going home a couple of times a week. Um, you do get long holidays, so that meant I could concentrate my eventing in the holiday time. And on the whole, it doesn't clash too much with, with eventing. The only big clash was end of term exams in early summer. So I did sometimes have to just not ride for a few weeks then and try and do some urgent cramming. <laughs> <laughs> so fast forward to the present, Victoria. You own a property now in Gloucestershire. Tell us a bit about the sort of basin setup you have there. Well, it's a 33 acre little farm. Um, steep learning curve for me when I first moved here, it was six years ago, because then you've got all the management on your own shoulders, uh, learn to drive tractor, manage fields, make hay, etc. Still learning now, of course. I have an arena that is ample for what I need. It's 25 by 60, which is um, great. I feel really lucky to have that. And it's got mirrors and lights and everything. And there's about 25 stables. It's an old dairy farm, so a little bit higgledy-piggledy and um, maybe not the easiest layout for sweeping and mucking out. But for the horses, I actually think it's a very good layout especially mares tend to not really like feeling too confined, crammed in with too many other horses. Um, and I have worked in American barns before and it's lovely for the humans and for some of the horses, but I have had mares who don't really like that environment. So I actually think it is beneficial that I have a number of stable blocks um, that are slightly different and I can kind of pick where each horse is happiest. And um, what I did um, love about the place when I first saw it were the things that you cannot change and that's the soil, the gradient and the view uh, and those are all incredibly important to me. The view simply because it um, keeps me happy even on a difficult day and it is sensational. I can see the Cotswolds, the Mulvans um, and a whole lot more. The gradient's great. I've got very steep hills and that means I can just turn a horse out in the field and it can do its hill work on its own and practice balancing and all sorts of good things. And, and then the soil it's, is sandy, which is fantastic for running anything to do with horses because um, it means it drains well. I'm not very muddy in the winter and yes, can get dry in the summer, but in fact, I've never had a problem with that. Um, even if it does mean it could dry quicker um, and maybe not help the grass in full summer. Actually, if we have two drops of rain, the water gets to the roots very quickly and it can green up again very quickly. Um, so I feel very blessed to have sandy soil and I turn out all winter. Uh, mine are generally all out at night all year round. And furthermore, I was able to school on grass up until January, that's never happened before. But <laughs> nonetheless, even on bad years, I can school on grass most of the year round. And by March, I'm drying up fast and 
Occasionally I go and see other people with uh, quagmire still in April and I feel very sorry for them because it must be much harder. Yeah, and I see a lot of... Um, I was going to ask you about this. You're saying you school a lot on grass and I see a lot of your videos where you and your team are sort of schooling horses over natural obstacles and over quite natural country. Tell us a bit about that sort of philosophy and the way you produce your horses. Well, the simplest reason is that most cross-country schooling places are shut in the winter. <laughs> so I'm very lucky to have an alternative. But I also think it's a, an important part of training for my horses. Uh, obviously doesn't substitute um, some actual cross-country schooling outings. But what I sometimes find quite worrying is that you come to a first event in the season when the going is probably going to be quite wet and those are going to be deep in places and 200 horses may have jumped that arrowhead before you in which case it probably is going to be quite poached by the time you get there despite best efforts i mean perfectly reasonable but it will be quite poached and a lot of people from what i can see don't really get off the arena throughout the winter and if cross-country schooling venues aren't open been very lucky this winter I believe some have been able to open but on average uh, I've found a lot haven't opened until after the first events have been and I personally would not feel comfortable jumping a horse out of mud that hasn't done so for the last five months since it last ran um, so I think it's really important to make sure they have a feel, feel for that and can jump out of some softer patches before you have your first run um, and be used to crossing lots of different terrains. So I'm incredibly lucky. I have friends with incredible farms and states that very, very kindly let me visit. And I absolutely love it. I'm very, very grateful to people that let me come and play. <laughs> it does look like playing when you put the videos up for sure. Victoria, let's talk about your horses, the team that you have. Who is going to be heading up your string this year? Well, it's going to be a rather difficult year, not quite the way I would have hoped it to be. Um, unfortunately, my top horses are coming back from injury. They are in work, uh, but unfortunately need to take it easy and I'm very keen to give them time and absolutely not rush them. So they won't actually be out of eventing for a while. That very sadly means I probably won't have anything for a World Equestrian Games. Uh, which is really sad because they're in Rome and I would rather like to do World Crescent Games in Rome but I do have other horses um, progressing and there is a little bit of a gap I'd have to say um, the next in line is uh, Chatteron who did her first three star short end of last year and um, she did very nicely she came second at Ballandenisk she does try really hard and she does the best with um, everything she has and I'd like her to work towards a long format three star and and then another mare called Secret Legacy who's by Kevin Zed is coming back from an injury but had got just gone up to intermediate level at the time so I'm hoping she can carry on where she left off um, and hopefully if all goes well she could aim for three stars as well she's a very exciting jumper so that's promising um, wasn't the biggest fan of dressage but we've worked hard on that she's now a bit older a bit stronger able to uh, allow me to ask a bit more of her um, so we've worked hard on her balance and coordination and um, hopefully we'll be able to get a few more dressage marks um, after that the others are all quite young really good fun getting your babies out for their first runs really look forward to seeing how they go um, obviously it's then a long journey and um, no rush um, they won't be doing big championships for a while but the journey on the way is is really fun and it's great to see them develop yeah for sure let's talk about some of those sort of the, the the great horses of your career and maybe the way to do this is i think we should talk about your your three olympic experiences and the horses that have taken you there let's talk about rock model he's the horse that i first remember you riding took you to your first olympics in 2008 the beijing olympics obviously but the equestrian sports were in hong kong what was that like your olympic debut gosh you don't really know what to expect the first time and I'd have to be entirely honest, I was almost a little apprehensive before leaving because it's such a long journey, it's so complicated getting to the Olympics. 
I mean, this was long before COVID time. So at the time I thought that was complicated. Last year took on a whole new level of complicated. So in hindsight, Beijing was just a piece of cake. But at the time it did seem a lot of complications to get through. And you think it's gonna be a difficult climate and different type of competition. Um, but goodness, it's all so worth it. It's only once you've been that you realize how much how much goes with it that you don't get at other events because realistically the olympics aren't the biggest event they're not as big as burley for instance um, although obviously you have the highest level of competition so um, you're still going to have an incredibly competitive competition but it's not the biggest but it's got so much other stuff going with it that you don't get elsewhere um, and it's all so special i mean firstly so quite simply, it's the only international currency that everyone understands. If you speak to a non-horse person and you say you've jumped around badminton, in England they might have heard of it. In Italy, unless they're event people, they will not have a clue and it doesn't place you at all. But everyone knows what the Olympics are and suddenly um, it changes things quite a lot. and It yeah. can change your life quite a lot. Other than that, there's then all the detail in terms of actually being there, um, mixing with all the other nations, seeing other sports, seeing a different country, being in a completely different situation. And that's all just amazing. And I always love to soak that up as much as possible. Um, obviously, the competition is important, but I feel the life experiences are also very important. And I love to always try and make the best of all of that. Unfortunately, Beijing, we were not in Beijing, the equestrian sports were in Hong Kong. So the downside was we weren't with the other sports, we could only watch them from afar. Uh, and that was a shame. Uh, then again, the upside was we got a very smart four-star hotel rather than being crammed in Olympic Village. Olympic Village is amazing, but very crammed. Whereas four-star hotel with uh, a huge room with two double beds all to myself was uh, pretty cool. <laughs> so, rather different living arrangements and uh, um, it was my first experience in that sort of climate um, which did make me far better prepared for Tokyo because um, it was a similar climate and competing in that weather um, isn't ideal. I was probably helped by the fact I did grow up in Rome so I was used to hot humid summers and riding unpleasant weather but this was worse. The oxygen content's low in the air because of the very high humidity, and that makes it harder to breathe, both for us and for the horses, sweat a lot. And it was interesting watching the horses breathe. They, they would flutter their nostrils very fast to recover after even just a few minutes of trotting. And that could be a bit alarming initially, but they, they did adapt well, they did cope well, and the whole competition was managed as carefully as possible for um, horses to be able to cope with the climate. So competing early, competing late uh, and things like that. I had to start warming up for dressage about four in the morning. I can't say I normally like dressage enough to do that often, uh, but for the Olympics one would make an exception. Yeah, we, we competed at very odd hours and they had great facilities, uh, air-conditioned stables, they were also uh, dehumidified, there were misting tents, uh, all of which was also present in Tokyo. Um, but I think we used them even more in Beijing because it actually was a little bit hotter there. Um, in Tokyo, although it was similarly very hot and humid, there was a bit more of a breeze, especially in the afternoons, and that cooled things down quite a lot. So I found it more pleasant, or perhaps I was just mentally more prepared. <laughs> And um, luckily, Rock Model had a lot of blood and was pretty infatigable. So he didn't really have much of a problem and he still skipped round across country very speedily. As far as I remember, with not quite as many breaks as I'd have liked, but I was used to that. In years to come, having ridden other horses, I've realized how lacking my breaks were on him. And 
I was then quite relieved when I found out she had more brakes <laughs> He was a special horse though, you know, took you from young riders up through your first senior championships, won your first senior team medal 2007 at home in Protoni and team bronze. He was a lovely little horse, wasn't he? Yes, he was incredibly special. It was amazing to have a long journey with him, um, to started riding him when I was probably still a junior. Um, competed on him at Young Riders. Uh, he totally deserved to win the Young Riders. Um, I completely let him down by making him have a time fault in the show jumping in Poland. Entirely my fault. I did not need to add an extra two strides. Sorry, Bug. Um, he deserved that gold. Um, I actually let Michael Jung win it, um, which now has annoyed me a bit ever since. I could have at least beaten him that time. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and then we moved on into seniors and um, the medal in Protoni was incredibly important to us because, of course, it was back in front of a home crowd. Um, I'd last competed there when I won being the junior Europeans, which I won. Um, and that was actually the last day of living in Italy. My junior horse, Gromit, known as Wombi, um, was incredibly special. And he won all the junior stuff with me in Italy. He then won the junior Europeans individually I think we were bronze team and that next day we loaded oh I loaded the horses onto the British team lorries and moved moved to the UK so it was sort of my last day living in Italy um, and a very memorable one anyhow um, then returning for the senior Europeans was amazing and we won a bronze team medal and it was incredibly important because that gained us qualification for the Beijing Olympics. Indeed and your second Olympics was London so another sort of home soil I guess living in Britain with the lovely grey mare Borough Pennies and that was your best individual result so far at a Games 11th that must have been a pretty cool week. Yes all three of them have been very special and all three have something that really characterised them but I've got to say London was pretty incredible and very unforgettable, very unrepeatable, I think. I don't think we'll ever see an atmosphere like that again, certainly not till we get rid of COVID. But the crowds were just sensational. Of course, it wasn't really my home crowd because I ride for Italy, but I am based here. So it was a crowd I felt close to and had some connection to. They were so supportive of everyone and everyone got so into the spirit that there was a Mexican wave of cheering going round the, the stadium. And mostly if any British rider walked past, it would just be this big Mexican wave of cheering. But that would still give everyone tingles down your spine. Um, and on the cross country, although the area was smaller, so there was space for less crowd than Babington, it did mean they reduced the, the space between the strings and we were galloping down narrower channels so that they could cram more crowd in. Um, and actually that gave you an amazing feeling because then you were pretty much galloping through the crowds rather than galloping down a very wide, uh, wide strip with crowds kept further apart. Um, so that gave you a lot more atmosphere as well and they cheered you up the hills and I felt that sort of helped get your horse home. And Penny's was really young. I'm not one for rushing horses at all but she just didn't have any delays in her progress. She actually only started when she was six and she got to London in three years, which I think is probably pretty unusual. I, I, I can't really imagine doing that again. She did her first event when she was six and when she was nine, she was in London. Um, as I said, I did not mean to rush her, but she got her qualifications in time and when I realised the Olympics were in grasp the year before um, I just made sure I slightly targeted where she ran and um, was very careful of where she ran the actual year of the Olympics 2012 um, and prepared her for that event which was going to be quite unusual, tight space, very steep hill, pretty intense um, so aimed for twisty events, hilly events got her super fit. Um, she did sometimes used to struggle a little with galloping up hills, so I really focused on that. And when she finished that course clear inside the time, it was just the most incredible feeling because I just felt what I'd worked towards for a whole year just materialised. 
um, and it was very special. And then the other very special feeling was the show jumping. In Olympic format, there's two rounds of show jumping, and the first rounds for team, second rounds um, for individual result. I actually didn't have a team that year, as only two of us, but you still do both rounds because the first round gets you through to the second individual round if you're in the top 25, which Penny's was after cross country. And because of the system and not having a team, I jumped as one of the first few horses in the first round with added stress because I actually lost my hat cover on the cross country. Lots of low trees, they couldn't cut the branches because of park rules. I couldn't find a hat cover and did the trot up and you know you'd be worrying about your horse's legs and getting through trot up and all of that and you don't really think about your hat cover until I went to get ready for show jumping suddenly being told that I'd be in the ring quite soon because they decided to run the individuals first and suddenly realised I had no hat cover of course you're in the middle of London no tack shops you can't really borrow one off someone else because everyone else got a team hat cover so I can't just go and wear a different flag um, so I managed to find an old spare and had to sort of um, it had logos on it, so we had to stitch it up to cover the logos. You're not allowed large logos at the Olympics, and there's all that side of rules which are complicated. And was ready in time for getting a ring. Uh, incidentally, years later, a photo was shared online of me jumping around the course without my hat cover, and somebody pipes up on Facebook and goes, "Oh yes, we found a hat cover, and my daughter uses it for pony club." <laughs> well, that's great. I'm delighted she does. It would be quite handy to have had it for the show jumping. I happily would have given it back to you after show jumping. <laughs> anyway, the things you find out on Facebook. Anyway, she went into the ring with my very dodgy looking hat cover. And that's one thing I hate in the pictures. It looks so silly. Um, but she jumped fantastically around. And she was the first clear round of the day. So she got a huge cheer and was her pingy white self. So what I really remember is riding into the ring the second time. Um, and what was unforgettable is she got a huge cheer riding into the ring a second time before she jumped because everyone had so enjoyed her first round. And, and that just felt amazing. Um, I, I could never forget that. And then yeah. she jumped clear again and moved up to 11th. We had a, a lot of climbing to do because her dressage was still very green because she was still young. Um, a huge atmosphere, massive stadium. The flying changes were a bit too flying with sort of bucks and kicks and the judges apparently weren't too impressed. And there had been a huge storm, sort of two horses before I went in, which didn't help either. But she certainly got everything else perfect after that. Yeah, and you were the, apart, Michael Young was the only person who finished on his dressage score. You had one time yes, in one of the jumping right. rounds, but you were, apart yes. from him, sort of the closest person to finishing on that first phase score. Pretty yeah, impressive. Yeah, it was great. Then, of course, the other thing with London was that we were right in the thick of it, in the city, with all the other sports in the Olympic Village at the opening ceremony and that was just amazing, that was the dream. That's what we don't always get because horse sports sometimes are further away from the city. Mm. Victoria, we've been talking for a long time because it's so fun to chat to you. Final question, just tell us a little about Tokyo just to round off that, that Olympic trio. So, as I mentioned earlier, Tokyo was the most complicated Olympics we ever had to organise for. A few similarities from my point of view in terms of climate um, and that side of things, uh, similar to Beijing, uh, but of course, plenty differences too. We were having to juggle Brexit, COVID and Olympic rules in the prep time. And that was almost not doable. There was actually a moment about just under two months before, when the rules kept changing and there kept being more hurdles, that we almost thought, we just don't know how we can navigate through all this and get there. Um, and it was incredibly complicated. I wouldn't even know how to summarise it well enough, but effectively I ended up having only one week's notice that I was going to have to be away from the UK for an extra three weeks to what I was expecting. Um, so I had to miss some runs on young horses. Uh, luckily my head girl was able to run some for me and I was going to have to abandon everything at home for far longer than expected. And as much as I love going to fun events, I love home 
and love continuing work with the young horses, love seeing my view, playing for my fields and um, I'd put a lot of work into a very large vegetable garden that, that I set up in Covid and I was um, a little sad I was going to miss out on all my hard work from all year. Anyway, it, it, was, it was quite a tough few weeks. I ended up having to go out to Italy and Germany before flying to Tokyo and the Covid rules really complicated things because other nations kept putting quarantine days on arrivals from the UK particularly and, and it kept changing. So for instance the horses needed to quarantine in Germany because that's what had been set up for the Italian team along with other teams. Um, but there was 10 days quarantine at one point for humans to get in. So the question was, send a horse there, but how am I going to ride it and look after it because I can't get in? So it was such a huge relief to actually get there. A minefield of rules and well done Tokyo for managing to put it all on despite the chaos throughout the year um, with no one yeah. knowing what was going to happen if we were going to be able to get there. And they did an amazing job. It was really sad to not have crowds, of course, um, and that's what was very different to any other Olympics and I feel very sorry for Japan to not be able to enjoy it as they would have deserved to but luckily there were enough of us with the three horse sports that you still have a lot of people that are there anyway because you've got dressage eventing and show jumping so so you still still do have a bit of atmosphere and we can create a bit of our own atmosphere uh, and there were still some some amazing moments um, where you could feel a bit of a crowd buzz. The facilities were incredible. Um, Tokyo City is very different to anything else I've seen. It's just, I think it's the biggest city in the world. And you're traveling on buses for 45 minutes to get from the um, Olympic Village to the Equestrian Park. And all that time, you're driving through, or the bus is driving through skyscrapers on a dual carriageway, so quite fast. And that, that's just big, it's just skyscrapers forever. Um, and a lot of the city's on water. Um, so you could see a lot from a bus, we just weren't allowed to go off and explore. They even were sticking tape on the bus door to make sure that no one had skived off and got off the bus between A and B. <laughs> <laughs> there is a lot I can relate to there, Victoria, because exactly the same as you, I have to say, five weeks out, I didn't think we were going to get there. And I was only trying to get people there, not horses. So I absolutely, yeah, definitely had some so of those you know same experiences. <laughs> yeah, no, I do. And exactly the same thing. There did just come a point where I went, I just don't think this is going to happen. Um, but yeah. but it was, it, they, they certainly did an amazing job. Um, what I particularly loved was the fact the cross country was on an island of rubbish. I mean, who would have ever thought of that? Yeah, um, but my colleague um, Polly and I did christen it Rubbish Island. <laughs> <laughs> Very pretty Rubbish Island. Um, so if the listeners don't know, I believe they dumped a lot of their waste um, rubbish and other, other stuff and created an island in the sea um, instead of dumping it inland. Um, and then grew a really pretty park on top of it, lovely green grass, watered by hand. I mean, on cross-country day, there, there were a lot of people, a lot of Japanese people out there with hose, pipe, hose pipes watering that course by hand. I thought that was serious dedication. And it looked beautiful with an amazing backdrop of the city. Um, just made for quite a twisty course. So uh, luckily, Ken turns pretty well and he's pretty quick. Uh, I still think I could have been a little bit faster, but I felt like my brakes weren't quite good enough to be faster still. And I was early on in the day, so I was pathfinder for the team and needed to get a good, solid, clear home. But I, I did feel the heat a bit as well. And I think I perhaps could have helped him more at the end of the course if I'd been a little fitter myself. But in my defence, unfortunately, that's just really hard. I've had a lot of physical issues in the last um, two years and I have trouble with autoimmune type uh, disease type issues and I've had ankylosing spondylitis um, so I actually can't just go running uh, or something simple like that. Swimming is the best way for me to keep fit um, and there was no access to swimming pools out there, uh, only the actual swimmers were allowed in the swimming pools. So. Sadly, I was hoping that would be my solution, but I didn't have access to that. Um, I had to make the best of what I had, and I'd walk up the nine flights of our 
tower block to my accommodation every day. <laughs> uh, but the, the heat is, is intense and it can sap you, um, especially when you're wearing all your um, back protectors and air jackets and everything. In, in cross-country mode, um, you can feel the heat a bit if you're on a it's quite a strong horse. But um, it was a beautifully built course. Um, all the facilities were, were really incredible. Stables were beautifully built and the Japanese were really friendly and welcoming. I, I really liked them as a nation. Um, we all felt very welcomed and um, they, they were really sweet and smiley. Again, I enjoyed making the best of all of it. Uh, I may not have brought home medals, but I do have an amazing collection of team badges on my accreditation pass. Um, I haven't counted them, but I've got at least 40 or 50 there from all different nations. Um, so that's an amazing memory and uh, that's my, my sort of gold and silver stuff. Um, <laughs> and it's a great tradition at the Olympics that all teams always swap uh, pins and it becomes sort of international language. Everyone walks around you, the Olympic Village and coming up to you going, pins, pins. You can get a great collection, try and find the weirdest nations that you might not have heard of. Yeah, definitely. I think I missed out a bit on pins in Tokyo because there was a bit less of a interaction between journalists and athletes. But uh, yeah, definitely determined to get back in on the pin action in Paris. <laughs> <laughs> well, Victoria, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been so great to hear all about your horses and how you grew up in Italy and moving to Britain and then to uh, trot through your Olympic experiences as well. It's been great to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's lovely to speak to you. So I'm joined today by all three members of our news team, including Lucy, who is actually on holiday, but has decided to join us for the podcast anyway. So I'm going to start with Lucy Elder, our senior news writer. How are you, Lucy? I'm very well, thank you, Pippa. Gosh, it feels like spring today. It is so sunny and so warm. I nearly, as I am off today, as you said, I nearly had an ice cream for breakfast, but um, uh, <laughs> I'm going to save that for after lunch, I think. Not going too wild on my first day off. How are you? I'm... I admire that commitment to being on holiday that you considered having an ice cream to breakfast. Well done. I am well, thank you. Yeah, I had a big week of going to the theatre last week, actually. Went to the theatre twice, so that was lovely. And as you say, the weather is, is looking great, even here in London. So, yeah, all looking good. We also have with us our news editor, Eleanor Jones. How are you, Eleanor? Yeah, all good. Same as Lucy. I didn't even think of ice cream for breakfast, and maybe I should have done. But um, yeah, sun's out, horses without rugs on. <laughs> all good. Well, I'm sure you just didn't think of ice cream for breakfast because you're not on holiday, so you went in the ice cream mood. <laughs> and we also have with us Becky Murray, another of our senior news writers. How are you, Becky? I'm well, thank you. Um, also feels like spring in Scotland, so that's all good. Uh, mud is drying up slowly but surely, and my horses very much have spring fever, so trying to keep everyone in one piece. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Well, I hope the good weather is going to persist through to this weekend when I'm out competing and it's not going to suddenly decide the Saturday is the day to have a month's worth of rain or something. Oh, but hopefully <laughs> that won't be the case. <laughs> Eleanor, we were talking last week about the staff crisis in the equine world, and you've been following up on that through this week. Uh, you spoke last week about one particular groom who had told you her story and I know you've spoken to a couple more in the last week since we last chatted on this podcast. What are you hearing from grooms? Yeah, we, we've heard from quite a few grooms who are keen to sort of share their experiences. Um, one in particular I spoke to this week was paid uh, £100 a week for working weeks of 70 plus hours. Uh, in one yard, she was housed in a mouldy room with four dehumidifiers, which got her really poorly. Um, she, Her general experiences were she would be starting at half past six in the morning, lucky to have 20 minutes for breakfast or, or time to eat a sandwich at lunch, finishing late especially during the season uh, the eventing season and then you know leaving at half past three in the morning the next day and it was just a case of you're getting paid 100 pounds a week because that's all we can afford but she said there were times she would come back from competitions where the rider her had won money and she'd be eating fish fingers because she didn't have the money for anything else Gosh, well, it's it's bad to hear that. And I know that you spoke as well to Lucy Catan, the founder of the British Grooms Association and Equestrian Employers Association. She gave you some interesting information and opinion on the whole topic. Tell us about what she said. 
Yeah, so obviously she has been uh, fighting in this area for a long time. And, and one of the biggest things that, because uh, as we find when sometimes when we run these stories, people will comment on social media sort of saying, well, that's how the equestrian industry is. And that's what I used to do when I worked in it. But that what it boils down to is it's not legal. You know, people, it is not legal to pay people less than the minimum wage and they have to have contracts and pensions and sick leaves and all the other areas of the legislation. And she's just saying, you know, how are people still getting away with not complying with the law. Mm, and I thought it was really interesting that Lucy pointed out that once the minimum wage goes up to £9.50 an hour on the 1st of April, someone who is working 70 hours a week at that rate would be on £34,500 a year. And I don't think there are a lot of grooms who, who earn that, although I hope there are some. Yeah, no, I, I definitely wasn't being paid the equivalent of that when I was a groom. <laughs> <laughs> But of course, they're not all bad employers in the equine industry. There are some who are, who are good. And I know you spoke to, to, to one rider who is a good employer, Eleanor. Who did you talk to on that side? Um, I spoke to the uh, European eventing champion, Nicola Wilson, whose name had been given to me as a, as a good employer, which she said she was very flattered by. And, and she hopes that her staff agree because she said uh, she she gets someone, she engages someone to to ensure all that the contracts and pensions and everything is dealt with because so she wants to be confident that that's all done by the book. But her attitude was we're all in it together. You know, she respects all her staff. She values what they do, appreciates the fact they love their horses and their support for her and that's apart from obviously complying with the law which she does is um she said what's so important is that i value and respect them mm. and it's interesting also that lucy Catan said that in general riding schools and livery yards were more likely to be compliant but competition yards were, were less likely to be compliant with employment law although as you say from speaking to nicola that's not always the case but that was another point that lucy made wasn't it yeah yeah well, thank you, Eleanor. I'm sure that's a story that will continue to rumble on and we'll be hearing more about. Lucy, you have been looking at the menopause this week. And the first question I want to ask you is, why is this a topic for us at Horse and Hound? What is the relevance to riders and riding? So I think probably the place to start is to say that it's relevant It's relevant to everyone, uh, directly or indirectly, but directly for women and also for some trans and non-binary people as well. So females make up over half the population and research tells us that 25% will experience serious symptoms connected to menopause at some point. But focusing on riders, as you said, we are horse and hound, uh, we know that females account for 67% of regular riders. So just talking statistically, that's going to be a big chunk of our demographic. I, I spoke to numerous riders this week who had found that their enjoyment of life and riding had been seriously affected by symptoms, for example, things like severe anxiety, mood swings, uh, loss of confidence, weight gain and physical pain. But crucially, none had any idea at the time that these were linked to perimenopause or menopause. We all, I think, you know, people hear about hot flashes, but not a lot about the other symptoms that people can experience as well. So again, coming back to riders specifically, I heard from people who were on the verge of giving up or they had given up completely owing to these. Also things such as loss of strength or fatigue as well, which is compounded by poor sleep. Others told me they thought they were going mad. Um, and these again are people that have ridden all their lives, but they certainly couldn't remember a dressage test or a show jumping course. One told me that she thought, oh, I can't, I, I shouldn't be competing in riding club team competitions anymore because I'm letting people down. And it was horrific really to hear, hear about this because the reason for it was a lack of education and information. I mean, menopause has been one of those strangely taboo things uh, for until recent years, really. But with that, it means that, I mean, knowledge is power. And if you don't understand what's going on with your body and you don't understand why you're suddenly feeling like this, I can imagine that would be a very, very frightening, frightening situation to be in. But there, are good, there is a lot of good news as well. That was something I really wanted to get across in this article was that it's not to scare and none of the people I spoke to wanted to talk to me to scare or for sympathy. They wanted to talk to me so that other people don't go into this without that information and feel that, how they felt really. So I think there's going to be a lot more talked about this. We're already seeing it talked about in the national press, but I think there's going to be a lot more to come on this as well. Mm. And I know you spoke to Diane Danzabrink about her hashtag Make Menopause Matter campaign. What did she say? What's her campaign all about? 
I did. So Diane's campaign is to introduce menopause into the school curriculum, which she achieved in England in 2020, uh, to improve menopause education among GPs and to raise awareness of it within the workplace and for all employers to have support guidelines in place. And she also founded the Menopause Support website. So there's lots of other information and support support people can find on there. Um, so to give a bit of background, Diane went into surgical menopause, which is when a woman is pushed immediately into menopause as a result of certain operations. She found herself in a very dark place, but the positive news again is that she got treatment and she's now a driving force behind sort of changing the world for for the better. Uh, she's a former horse owner herself as well, so she really gets it from the rider's side as well, and she's a therapist too so that was really interesting to talk to her about she said that she also had heard all the scary stories about hormone replacement theory and that it was made from pregnant mare's urine whereas reality now is that things have changed significantly and of course this is something to speak to a qualified medical professional about but most of it now a lot of it now is now plant-based so i think that is something that's really important as well to be discussing with with your doctor um and she said that Again, this can have effects on relationships, careers and the things we love to do, which as horse owners and equestrians, riding is a big part of that. She said that she counselled quite a lot of people who had given up riding because of the symptoms, sort of very often owing to a loss of confidence, um, but also some of the symptoms that nobody wants to talk about because some of those are very intimate and they can be unbearably uncomfortable to the point of being painful, she said. So... Again, her point was that people have the information before it comes along so that they can make informed decisions and realise that they don't have to give up on the thing that they love in their life. Mm. And what other advice did you hear in the course of writing this story, Lucy? Uh, so much advice um, from broad advice right down to things from riders that they found had helped them. The main ones, again, coming back to the point that it isn't the end of of what you love doing and that you are absolutely not alone so we had some diet and exercise tips from ashley wallace from the british from british equestrian on how to better fuel your body to tips on exercise to promote bone density uh, because of course that is something else for riders to be aware of given that we are a risk sport is that there is a connection between the decrease in in bone density and menopause um there was also universal support, really, from almost everyone I spoke to for the Balance website and app, which is founded by GP and menopause specialist Dr. Louise Newson as a place to find some advice and to track your symptoms as well. And again, that leads me back to the point about sort of any medical matters at Horse and Hound. We, of course, do recommend you seek proper medical professional advice on those um, to help you debunk myths and find out about options benefits associated risks and coming back to that point about making informed choices that are right for you I also spoke to some people in connected industries who contacted me to say that they often have clients experiencing these symptoms in connection with riding and hadn't sort of linked the two so sort of a mindset coach and a fitness trainer as well so and again it came back to that point of how to work with your body rather than fighting against it but I mean yeah overall I was really really overwhelmed by the response I had from from my call out on Facebook and from people wanting to talk about this and wanting to talk about how it was affecting their riding so that so it, to help others really and coming back to what I said at the start it's not just a someone else problem or a women's problem it's something for us all to understand and I think there's a statistic which is 99% of women in a recent study said that their perimenopausal or menopausal symptoms had led to a negative impact on their careers so it's it's not just directly affecting those people it's something for us all to to be more aware of and to understand better really. Mm, Lucy, I knew this was a story you got really into because I read the uh, version on our website last night after it went up and um, I haven't done a word count on it, you probably have, but I think it was about 2,000 words long. So if you enjoy the short version in the magazine and you want to know more, do have a look at that real long version that's on our website. Thank you, Lucy. Becky, you've been covering jockey weights this week. It's a story where I think there's been a bit of a flick flack around on what's happening. Um, I'm hoping you're going to be able to explain it to us. Yes, so when the pandemic hit and racing then resumed, saunas in weighing rooms were closed. Now, because of this, a £3 COVID allowance was introduced to support jockeys making the weight without these saunas. 
Now, later, a vote was actually held and it was decided that saunas would remain closed permanently. And many said they voted for the closures on the basis this COVID allowance would remain in place. Now, last month, the British Horse Racing Authority announced that this COVID allowance was going to end and a £2 weight increase would be introduced for most race categories at the start of the flat and jump season. And this caused a lot of discussion and actually a lot of backlash. One of the main concerns being that this would affect jockeys' mental health as more might struggle to make the weight and could take quite drastic options to try and do so. Now, because of this, um, because of these concerns, the BHA did enter into discussions with jockeys and the Professional Jockey Association and the National Trainers Federation to look at this. And what was the outcome of those discussions? Well, the COVID allowance is still being dropped and the £2 increase is still being introduced, but an additional £1 is being introduced to the safety allowance. So, in theory, the horses will still carry the same weights since the COVID allowance and these weights will be published on the race cards, which the BHA say will provide the public with more accurate information. Okay, and what is the response to this latest change? Is it positive? Well, I spoke to flat jockey Ross Coakley about this. Um, I actually spoke to him firstly when the changes were announced last month and I spoke to him again about the latest. He says it's a compromise, but he really emphasised this is quite a complicated topic and it's not quite as straightforward as this fully resolves things for all jockeys. And the National Trainers Federation made an interesting point that they believe reflection is needed on the issues that caused the consultation process to fail in the first instance. So it will be interesting if any more sort of comes out on this in the future, I think. Mm, Okay, well, we will continue to follow that story as well. Thank you, Becky. And thank you to Lucy and Eleanor for joining us today too. Now we're going over to Trisha Nassau-Williams. Trisha is a qualified saddler, saddle fitter, bit and bridle fitter and liveryman at the Worshipful Company of Lorreners. She's lectured in Lorrenery, that is bits and bridling, to saddlery students at Capel Manor College for many years. Having previously run her own retail saddlery shop specialising in Lorrenery and saddle fitting, she now works as the field officer and Lorrenery consultant for the British Equestrian Trade Association. Over to you, Trisha. Well, on this episode, we're going to be talking about some of the changes that we've seen in bitting and bridling over the last 20, 30 years or so. I think really it's an incredibly exciting and positive time in our industry because so much more thought and care is going into not only the designs of our products, but the actual requirements. So much research is being done to really help both horse and rider to achieve um, greater comfort, which obviously is a welfare scenario but also best work for both of them and ability for horse and rider together as, as one unit because it's all about communication. If I look back over my time in the industry I remember um, the very early days when if you were buying say a bridle for example you would just have a bridle with a headpiece and a brow band, plain covers and nose band, plain reins. And very often in our saddlery, people would come in, oh no, I want this stitch nose band or that type of, and I want grip reins and so on. And over time, the industry developed and we ended up with a, a standard of what we knew as flash combis. And they were basically a snaffle bridle that came as standard with a flash nose band and rubber grip reins. And I think as time progressed over the years, it just became the norm to buy a bridle with a restrictive noseband, whether you really needed one or not. And I think the, the questioning perhaps behind the decisions that we have and use. Now, I'm not saying nosebands are bad, but I just think we need to think about what we've got and why we're using them. And the changes that we've got in the last, say, 10 years or so is the amount of research that's gone into bridling to understanding the impact upon the horse all through his body of his capability of performance um, from poorly fitting and over restrictive bridles that are not perhaps as either designed as well as they should be or fitted correctly and how important that is and from that has become a much greater understanding and development in the bridles that we have available to us now of course there are many anatomical bridles but even if you're using a traditional style bridle just the understanding of fitting and implementing it properly and it's all about education really because if we don't know about something we can't appreciate it if we don't appreciate it we can't 
be able to then implement it and move forward. So seeing the changes and designs of bridle that are available is a, a big uh, improvement and very positive one. I think also bitting has been through a journey. If I think back, I remember as a young person uh, in the 79, I think it was Eldonian who were very large uh, Lorreners bit makers in Walsall, England. They stopped their production of the bits actually in this country, and we had far, far more bits coming in, um, predominantly than from the Far East. And whilst many of the imported bits were a good design and, and good quality, we also had a plethora of bits that were had lost that connection between design and manufacture. And perhaps there were saddlery shops, some of which you might not have been so in tune to pick up on those issues. And I think some of the quality design really got lost along the way. But I am just so thrilled that, again, as with bridal work, um, Lauren Ree has had a lot of care and trouble and research put into it so that people are identifying an issue working on a design to respond to that um, and then really not only making good quality products but also giving the support that goes behind them so that as I say that the end user can understand their objectives and goals and why they've been designed as they have done and why they might be useful for one horse and perhaps not for another so I think that that those are the big ch changes that I've seen the research the design the manufacture and the education I think another really big development that we've seen in the last particularly 10 to 15 years is the emergence of bit and bridle fitters. Um, most of us would always get a saddle fitter out if we had an issue with our saddle or we were changing the saddle on the horse, etc. Um, but now that bits have a higher value, they it's more economically viable for people to come out and actually spend time really one-to-one -one working with the horse, working with the rider, working with you together, examining the horse, and then taking time and trouble to fit with care a selection of bits that are most appropriate for that horse and seeing the whole unit working together. And it's, it's another cog in the wheel of the overall management of the horse, along with the other equestrian professionals, so that not only is he maintained physically, but also all of his equipment and tack is fitted professionally. And I think that is one of the perhaps big changes that have occurred most recently. So looking for a really good bit and bridle fitter to help you with your horse. This has been made more viable now because bits have improved in so many different ways in their design and their finish and so on, that they are a more expensive unit price. And if you're going to make that financial commitment, you need to make sure that it is the right equipment for your horse, otherwise it's pointless. It doesn't matter how good a bit or a bridle's design is, if it's not the right fit and design for your individual horse, uh, or for you and your levels of training, working together and so forth, then it's not money that has been put to best use. So if your bridle is not fitting your horse well and he's in discomfort from it, on a very basic level, you may just notice that when you take his bridle off, he's very, very keen just to give his head a jolly good rub against the stable door or something like that. I think quite a lot of us will probably have witnessed that in the past, but how often have we actually asked, why does he need to do it? We might have just thought, oh, he's a bit sweaty. That's what it's about. But it could be that if the bridle is, for example, buckled up much too high on the cheek pieces or too tight um, on the brow band, causing the headpiece onto the back of the ears and so forth that he's it's actually caused him to feel tingly it almost pins and he's uncomfortable and that is his way of relieving that comfort um it's extraordinary how horses try to almost mask pain and uh, I had a horse that I wasn't quite sure why that should be and my vet explained it to me in as much that they're a flight animal if they're in pain it's a natural thing to try and just carry on and mask it because if they're the weaker one in the herd that's separated they might be the first to get eaten um, whereas if you take your average pet dog you only get a tiny sort of thorn in their pad and everybody knows about it so you're, it's incredible how horses will carry on with quite a bit of discomfort even though without giving huge symptoms from it but uh, signs of it can be examples such as tilting the head to to one side um, being one-sided when they weren't one-sided before in the way they're riven, having uneven muscle development even as it works back through through them, or even hind lameness or bridle lameness. It just by having a well-fitting bridle, it can improve the way the horse can work and his flexion right the way through and his engagement and 
so on through his whole body. So I think it's one of those things, the more you think about it, the more you know about it, the more you think, gosh, how did I never not really acknowledge that before? So I hope you found that useful and interesting. Uh, To find out more information of where you can seek services to help you and your horse with saddle, bridle and bit fit, please go to beta-uk.org and search our members directory. You can click the appropriate selection and put in your postcode and it will bring up service providers for you. Beta are the British Equestrian Trade Association here to serve you and your horse. Look out for the big Beta logo when you shop in store as a sign of a good approved retailer. See you next time. Thank you, Tricia. Next week, Tricia will be back with us to talk about bit selection and resolving bitting issues. Our interview will be with International Grand Prix dressage rider Sonna Murray-Brown. He talks about his rising stars and beating adversity to achieve his dreams. We'll review the week's news as normal too, of course, including the Cheltenham Festival. I hope you're enjoying the Horse and Ham podcast. The family is growing all the time. We had over 46,000 downloads on the podcast in January and we love it when you rate, review and share the podcast to help more people hear about it. See you next week. The Horse and Ham podcast is a Media Cage production.